Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Here's a stupid question. Is 40% a lot? The answer, of course, is yes, it is. For example, if you order a pizza that has eight slices and you throw 40% of the pizza in the trash, you'll only have 4.8 slices to eat. Why would you do that? You wouldn't throw out 40% of a perfectly good pizza that you paid for, right? That would be a ridiculous waste of food and money. Well, believe it or not, you are in effect doing just that. And so is everybody else in the country. According to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, between 30 and 40% of the food supply in the U.S. is wasted. This is not some sort of deep probe, out-to-lunch investigative reporting. You can find this information on the FDA's website. And think about this fact for a moment. In the U.S., food waste is the single largest item thrown into landfills. Not paper, not plastic, food. And just to be clear, by food waste, we're not talking about things like potato peelings or compost. We're talking about discarded food. If there was a way to intercept this food waste, it could be diverted to the 42 million Americans who live in households reported as food insecure. That is precisely what an organization called Food Rescue U.S. is trying to do. The New Orleans chapter of Food Rescue is headed up by its site director, Kelly Haggerty. Kelly, welcome out to lunch. Thank you for having me. When you own a restaurant, food waste is unavoidable. No matter how skilled you are at restaurant administration, it's very difficult to predict exactly how many people are gonna show up on a given day. But because restaurants run on slim margins, being able to predict food requirements is essential if you're gonna keep the lights on. If, for example, your restaurant is in line with the FDA statistic of wasting 40% of the food you purchase every day, you'll pretty soon find yourself out of business. New Orleanian Robert LeBlanc has managed to navigate the unpredictability of running restaurants, music clubs, and bars in New Orleans since 2005. Currently, the hospitality businesses Robert's company, LeBlanc and Smith, own and operate include the restaurant Sylvain in the French Quarter, the bar Barrel Proof in the Lower Garden District, and the Chloe Hotel in Uptown. Robert, welcome out to lunch. Hey, thanks for having me. Kelly, sometimes things that look simple on paper can be far from simple in the real world. For example, in New Orleans, we apparently waste 30% of our food. Meanwhile, 20% of New Orleanians reportedly struggle with hunger. Those numbers make it look like all we have to do is redirect our wasted food to people who don't have enough and it's problem solved. But we waste food in a haphazard fashion. I buy more produce than I manage to eat and end up throwing some away. Robert orders 50 pounds of shrimp and diners in his restaurant only order 40 pounds before the use by date. Food Rescue is doing what it can to intercept and redirect this waste, but how are you doing it? How do you find people you're trying to help, and how do you find the food to help them with doing all this? Um, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, our model is basically partnering with 
food donors, um, which are restaurants, cafes, bakeries, food serving businesses in, in the city and redistributing it to hunger relief organizations. And we do that by getting volunteers to sign up on this app. It's basically called, the, the app is app.foodrescue.us. You can sign up and I upload um, uh, food donations from restaurants, cafes, bakeries, um, and we redistribute it to hunger relief organizations or, or receiving agencies, which are churches, the mission, uh, mutual aid programs, uh, any nonprofit organization that feeds people. And I think the thing that grabbed me, Kelly, was that I was expecting you to be a middleman with or middle person with a uh, um, with a big warehouse somewhere, and that's mm -hmm. not what you're doing. No, we're we're basically just a third party. We we take food directly from point A to point B through uh, um, volunteers' cars. Um, so basically, a volunteer can show up to the food donor and pick up the food, and within 30 minutes, drop it off at the hunger relief uh, organization. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're we're kind of um, getting around all of the the basically the policies of, of having a warehouse essentially that makes the math work I would imagine that is yeah. <laughs> now Robert if there's one thing we all know about businesses that it runs on supply and demand in New Orleans there's a huge demand for restaurants to meet that demand people have opened something like 1200 restaurants judging by the number of restaurants that close the supply and demand seems to be in a state of perpetual rebalancing in strictly business terms, it's hard to understand. For example, your company closed Mobar on the edge of the quarter. You closed Longway Tavern in the quarter, and you closed Kavan uh, uptown on Magazine Street. All of these places were well-regarded and popular. And it seems like this is not uncommon. Uh, other restaurants that close are also well-regarded and busy, while we can point to less popular restaurants that somehow survive. In strictly business terms, the law of supply and demand dictates that the places in most demand will be the most profitable, but in the restaurant business, that simple formula doesn't seem to hold true. What's the intangible, the invisible secret sauce to running a successful restaurant that defies standard business logic? To the team. So it's um, it's the people there who bring the ideas and the experiences to life for guests. Um, and then it's the guests who, who frequent it. And so one of the challenges we really ran into with uh, Mobar specifically, but also Longway Tavern, is with the COVID pandemic, obviously supply um, of labor became really difficult. A lot of people sure. left. People weren't comfortable coming back into hospitality and working in restaurants and bars, understandably so. We also lost a lot of demand. People weren't going out to eat because of safety concerns and fears. And so, you know, what happens in business, unfortunately, is you you have to have a certain base number of people to make places work. To you have to have a base level of, of team members. And so, we worked on a pretty innovative model based on Toyota production systems, lean manufacturing. So that, the way they build Toyotas. I mean, that's actually very. Um, that's used in universities all the time. You, so, and, and, it, and it was really effective. But despite that, we still didn't have quite enough people to keep them all going. And then we were doing pretty well. And then when Hurricane Ida hit, we that was really traumatic for people who were working in hospitality. Like living in the Old Testament down yeah, there. It was pretty tough. It was, a, you know, it was a year and a half after COVID 
shut everything down and people evacuated from New Orleans to be with family and a lot of people just got exhausted and didn't come back. And so we really didn't have the people, but the ones that do work have incredible teams, have magical teams who put their heart and soul into it. And, you know, great restaurants are more like live theater or concert <laughs> venues than they are um, production systems, production lines, That's particularly here in New Orleans. That's for right? Making albums it, yes. and event so, space? So we think of it as like the last form of live entertainment to evolve. So people used to make a choice to go to a restaurant before or after doing something else artistically or culturally inclined, like an art gallery opening or right. a concert or a play. And now people have become so curious about culinary culture, wine, beverage, that that in and of itself becomes the live entertainment they choose. And so they'll spend an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours at a restaurant learning about every aspect of it. And so um, what makes it magical is the team that works there and brings that experience to life. And Kelly, how is, because your, comp your organization is in a lot of different cities, how is New Orleans different to be doing this? And one of the reasons I ask is that Let's see, the U.S., the New Orleans branch closed for a while, and then you came along and it reopened. How is the city different in this situation? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I find that New Orleans is very DIY and, and grassroots, um, and we... Um, but you've got a model. I'm sorry? You've got a model and the structure, and yours... So you're different than the other people doing these things in the city. Yeah, and I think I think the thing with Food Rescue US is every city's different. So basically, the model is can conform to how the city operates, right? Uh, but with New Orleans, like we, yeah, we're I think that people, the community comes together. The community is so strong that um, it's uh, we. It's pretty simple to get people to come together and, and believe in this idea, you know, and, and this model, and, and to reduce food waste and but you know one of the things is we have a lot of pilot programs and small people doing uh, very good things uh, but a lot of them oh I don't know out of exhaustion just just end uh, you could even argue that they, uh, um, they they have very difficult time scaling things like that does your model give you the ability to take it further yeah I mean I think so and I believe so um, I do want to say like you know, while a nonprofit has come in here and claim, you know, and, and it says, you know, Food Rescue US, there has been grassroots community organizations that have been doing this work for decades and decades. I mean, um, some of my origin story comes from Community Kitchen, which is basically just this background, you know, this backyard um, kitchen where people cook and then they bring the food to Duncan Plaza and all that food is, is basically rescued from food distributors in the city. And so there is a lot of, you know, DIY organizations and communities that have been rescuing food in New Orleans for a while. So while Food Rescue US uh, New Orleans has come in and, and started this work for the past two years, um, this work is done in so many different levels that... that um, Need them all? Yeah. Yeah. Even, you know, even like Crescent Care, which is like one of our partners, they go and pick up from some of, you know, some, some food serving um, businesses like... Uh, and wholesalers um, yeah. uh, to rescue food. So um, the, the beautiful thing that I think not only complements uh, Food Rescue, but Food Rescue can complement other organizations is that it's really happening all over the city, which is a really beautiful thing. Robert, uh, now, first of all, the, if people haven't been there, the Chloe is an amazing, really beautiful oh, thank place. thank you very much. Thank yeah. you so much. But all your buildings, uh, they're usually older buildings that have been repurposed as such. 
uh, why? I mean, why, that seems to be such a big part of, of you. Yeah, so that's, that's, how we, that's how we choose projects. We never start, first of all, we hate the word concept okay. because it's, <laughs> it's, it just doesn't apply to what we do and how we approach things. But we never start off with an idea that we want to do an Italian restaurant. So let's go find a building where we can do an Italian restaurant. We always start off by touring old buildings. And, and typically, the more um, in disrepair the building is, the better it is for us. So we love the process of salvaging old buildings and inviting the world back in to enjoy them. And how we define what will exist in that is based on the history of those buildings. We work with this really cool historian, um, Our House Stories is basically what they call it. And they do a history on when the building was built every owner they research archives and so you pull up magazine stories and so we just mine that history of the building and we use that history to inform what the place will become and that's how we design what music people will be listening to what the menu is the name of the place and the story of the place what if it was a brothel if it was a brothel we have to be really careful <laughs> tread very lightly just checking kind of a new orleans uh, new orleans question you um but you physically I mean, you're not in the business of restoring places, so. No, but that's, that's kind of where we start. So we, we, if we find a really cool building that deserves to be salvaged and we have a team that we think can activate the building and make it economically viable, that's how we'll do that. So um, we just tour buildings and if it's the right building, we say yes, and we'll do a project there. And then the project is informed by the building itself and the history of the building. And Kelly, I'm picturing you when you go to a place that you'd like them to give you uh, their spare food. Um, you got a great pitch. I mean, you've, uh, you know, if the food doesn't go into landfill, it, it's, it's not creating greenhouse ga gases. You have that going for you. Um, the, is the, um, are there donations? Are they tax deductible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. All right. Um, yeah. So um, basically, there's two different um, ways that, yeah, first off, you can just say, hey, if you reduce food waste, the food doesn't go in the landfills and creates, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, which then deplete the ozone layer. You know, that's one one um, argument. But then another is that you can get a tax write-off. And so basically, on our ends, we measure the food uh, in pounds um, for how... Uh, how valuable the donation is? is yeah, that? Oh, okay, so basically, yeah. at the end of the year, we can say, hey, top box foods, you donated this this amount of food and... and, and um, we can give them a tax write-off that way. Or um, basically another thing that a lot of restaurants are fearful of is um, getting sued for do donating food. Because something's wrong with the food and somebody eats it and Yeah, I mean, you know, we have this whole idea that food waste and food surplus means that it's something that, you know, because that name is attached to it, it, it has to be discarded. And in many cases it's true. I mean, a lot of the food that is food surplus and food waste should go to compost. Um, and 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 um, but that's like the the lowest tier. If it if you know if Gracious Bakery just doesn't sell that one last muffin, for example, on the shelf, and they don't want to sell it the next day, it's still good to eat. It you was know, I'm the just... guy that buys that muffin, by the way, the discounted <laughs> muffin. But thank you, I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, yeah, and it's 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 perfectly good to eat, but it's just Gracious Bakery wants to make a a fresh muffin again the next day. So they will donate that to us and we will distribute it immediately that, that evening, you know, to someone. So, um, you know, so basically we go into the restaurants and we give them this, um, 
we give them basically a packet that includes this uh, Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act. It was released in 1992, and it's a Good federal... Good Samaritan Act. Yeah, Bill okay. Emerson Good Samaritan Act. It's a federal act that protects you um, as a restaurant from getting sued if you donate to a 501c3. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, we follow uh, the food safety measures. Um, we make sure that, you know, the food is temperature checked and in a temperature controlled area before we uh, pick up the food and we redistribute it, you know, immediately to a hunger relief organization where they can then put the food um, safely um, and, um, you know, in a refrigerator or serve it immediately depending on the food. Um, and But uh, in terms of like um, people suing like it there that that kind of rarely happens you're listening to out to lunch i'm peter raschuti i'm talking with kelly haggerty from food rescue the local branch of a national organization that fights food waste and restaurateur hotelier and bar owner robert leblanc from leblanc and smith robert i gotta ask you a question the name of the firm is LeBlanc and Smith. Did you not bring Mr. Smith with you? Or did he not I, like I pizza? No. Or? So this is um this is a this is interesting. People ask that question all the time. Who Smith is? So Smith is actually my mother's maiden name. Oh. So I am half French, half Irish, and the French side of my family is a long line of architects and engineers, builders, and so. Because you're from Homa. I'm from Homa. My parents are both from New Orleans, so my okay. family is, is primarily here. So. Um, and then the, the, the Smith side, the Irish side, originated from an orphan from County Cabin, Ireland. He emigrated here wow. as an eight-year-old to be a sailmaker on the docks in the Mississippi River. Um, so for family parties, we would always, holidays, we would always go to the LeBlanc house for half of the day. We'd go to the Smith house for half of the day. And um, the Smith side, Terrence Smith um, became a Steve Dorr and then started a company and became successful. He settled here in the Irish Channel. but. Um, because he was an orphan, family and friends were always important to him. And um, it's interesting, when we went to the LeBlanc house, my grandmother was an amazing chef. Um, it wasn't stuffy, and they were very nice, and we also it was also very convivial as well. But what I remember really clearly about the LeBlanc experiences is my grandfather was always listening to beautiful classical music. He'd make Sazeracs for the whole family before dinner. My grandmother would make a few courses. Um, and, and it was just a beautiful experience. It wasn't a elaborate house, right. but they had tons of great reclaimed items from projects that they had built or salvaged over the course of his career. And everything that you experience viscerally at LeBlanc Smith's properties really probably comes from the LeBlanc side. On the Smith side, it was almost exactly the opposite. I don't really remember what it's we like ate or drank. Fights or? Well, I don't, okay. I don't remember what we ate or drank, and that's not to say that it was bad right. necessarily, but what I do remember is it wasn't just aunts and uncles and first cousins. It was third cousins. And it wasn't just family members. It was neighbors. And it wasn't just neighbors. It was neighbors' cousins. And basically anybody who couldn't go back to where they're from for the holidays or anybody who needed a place to be with family would always find themselves at the Smith house. And I don't really remember what we ate or drank, but I do remember that the soundtrack was laughter. And three hours would pass and would felt like 30 minutes. Like you'd get there and it felt like it was time to leave already. And the Smith experience that I always experienced growing up is how we want people to feel in our places. We want everybody to feel completely at home and welcome and that they're a part of this community you, and they can taken, have fun. Taken a bit from both of those. Folks. Yes, yeah, exactly. That, for, now Kelly, I was just thinking of all the, if there were downsides at all, uh, or make things that make it difficult for you, I would think that when you approach someone about giving them giving you their their food that they're not going to use 
restaurants today are so strapped. They don't have enough people, and it seems like now somebody's, this woman's come in and she, they're asking me to do one more thing. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. And you totally captured my pitch right there. Like, oh. I walk in, especially we started in May of 2020 when... when oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Um, when, like, restaurants were closed or at very minimal capacity or they were only doing takeout. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, I'm not sure if that was before we started recording or not, but, like, yeah, um, you know, basically, like, everyone just got exhausted. And so that's... I walk in and I say, hey, I... I you know, if you want to donate food, I'll make it easy for you. You know, all we basically all you have to do is put the food in the cooler and we'll come tw- twice a week and pick it up. And basically, I write instructions to my volunteers and, you know, about how to pick it up and then how to drop it off. And so basically, we've created a, a, a just a routine for some of our food donors to get into. Um, maybe the, the most inconvenience um part of of donating food for them is they have to like wrap the food and put it in the cooler and create space in the cooler but a lot of the times our 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 food donors and um our partners um have that space already existing so um yeah they you know and they have to take you know i think the the hardest part is the first few weeks too you know they they take to to um to train the staff to donate the food um, but after that, it really becomes routine, and and everyone's pretty grateful. Make for it as easy as as possible for them. So yeah, and a lot of the times too. I mean, I I run into restaurant owners and managers that um, they they aren't sure what to do. So the staff themselves, very DIY, grassroots, right. takes the food and donates themselves. So it actually, you know, sometimes when we we gain new food donors. Um, the staff tells me, hey, this is just as long as y'all can pick it up because I have been, you know, I've been bringing it to the, you know, the mission or I've been bringing it to the community fridges or I've been. So um, if if there if some restaurants or food donors are feeling really strapped, it's actually sometimes a relief. And Robert, and I've been to a couple of your places and um, not exclusively, but it seems like more of a locals kind of place. Is, is that consciously did you do that or yeah I mean we love the idea of neighborhood spots we love the idea of a great restaurant or a great bar being kind of the seat of community in a neighborhood so it's important to us even though we are such a tourism driven city and economy it's important to us to make sure that we're locals oriented first and we get tons of people who aren't from New Orleans who are just visiting but they're typically the people who want to go where the locals go so it's really important to us. Um, and that sense of community that we talk about, a lot of times that is driven not just by your own team, that idea of making everybody feel welcome. A lot of times that's driven by your great regulars who have a sense of propriety over the place. So they're there all the time. We see that at Barrel Proof all the time. You know, guys who come in once or twice a week or people who come in once or twice a week who are locals, they can act as de facto hosts for someone who's just visiting and staying at the you know, Higgins Hotel or whatever who yeah. happens to just pop in for a whiskey. and that. That's part of what makes it magical. Um, so if you orient it to locals, also it's more entertaining that way. You know, one of the things I've always said about New Orleans that makes it great is that you can sit on a bar stool at Miss May's next to a local, and that's as entertaining of an experience <laughs> as going to see Lady Gaga in the theater in Las Vegas, um, truly. And that'll cost you about $2 for a Miller High Life <laughs> as opposed to 500 or whatever that Vegas show costs. And, and so that, you know, you, you get more of that experience if you cater to locals. Robert, one of the things, um, you clearly you know what you're doing here and such, but you've had to close down places. What 
what's involved in that that decision? I mean, you've got you have to deal with staff, uh, rent. It's got to be a tough call. Yeah. So the first thing that we do when we make that decision is we try to make sure that we can place everybody who wants to be placed elsewhere in the company. So we don't. Our team is everything. That who that you know. I have ideas and thoughts, but they're the ones who bring them to life. And so that's the first part of the decision. So um, Longway Tavern. For instance, we knew that we were going to open a bar in the Marigny called Anna's with a pretty strong food program. Um, once we knew that we had that solid, then we could close Longway Tavern because almost everybody from Longway Tavern went to Anna's to open up Anna's. Um, the Mobar team got um, moved over to Cabin, um, and when we closed Cabin, that team got dispersed between Sylvain and oh. um, Chloe. So that's always the first choice. And once we figure out that we have the team set, then we just have to make sure that we get all the vendors paid. We don't want to walk away without anybody being whole. So we pay all the bills and make sure we have the financial wherewithal to be able to do that. And then you just have to be honest about why they closed. And, you know, there's a lot related to COVID and supply and hurricanes. But the reality of it is on all those businesses, if there are things that I had done differently or better, then they wouldn't have closed. If I'd have been more profitable before the storms and had a better cash reserve, if I had been um, more forward-thinking in some of our approaches, and so you just have to take responsibility for the mistakes that I made and share them honestly. Um, Kelly, I have a question for you. I, I think that's awesome what you're doing. We are not participating in something like this, but we'd love to. How do we? What is that food that we are? donating look like? Is it the 10 pounds of shrimp that Peter mentioned at the beginning of the show that we just haven't cooked because guests haven't ordered and so we're going to have to throw it away or we're going to have to cook it off in the family meal? Or is it um, a catering job that we did where people only ate half the food and so now we can take the other half and box it up so it's already prepared? I guess the question, is it raw ingredients or is it finished meals and dishes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we take really anything from produce to frozen foods to prepared meals. Um, the only thing that we won't take is if like food is like front presenting, right? If like if someone is like if it's a catering style, for example, and you know you're you're taking the the customer is taking the food and scooping it on their plate, we we are not allowed to take that for food safety reasons. Um, and in, and in terms of uh, food rescue U.S. New Orleans, we're actually not supposed to take hot food. So, in terms of um, prepared foods or catering dishes, we just ask you to put the tray in the cooler uh -huh. over, and then we come and pick it up overnight. You know, you and pick it, it up cool. So, like if we made a pasta for a catering dish, that plate of pasta never got touched by a guest. If it gets touched by a guest, it's off limits, no matter what. If it never got touched by a guest. It can cool back down. We put it in the refrigerator, and that's still good for you guys. Yeah, and we and we're and um, prepared food is like is kind of gold for us. Yeah, we um, you know because we'll pick up a lot of produce. We partner with a lot of farmers, and um, you know a lot of the uh, food. You know most of the food donations that we do pick up is is produce, um, but prepared food is just gold because you can just redistribute that and someone can eat that immediately yeah. you know so a lot of the food that we redistribute we redistribute to kitchens redistribute to you know people who know how to cook the food to then serve it but just to be able to take that food that you've prepared um, and just give it to you know a hunger relief organization and then that may, may give the kitchen staff a break 
is a beautiful thing. Um, Nothing could make me happier if you guys got together. Yeah, way, I was thinking be... that. This, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. I did bring a few cards. Yeah, you know what else Like, we, I'd love to think about or explore with you is, so what we do in our restaurants, we try to be really precise with food. So we, um, I wouldn't say we serve smaller portions um, intentionally, but we do a lot of things appetizer style. So it's less expensive, but people can get two portions of it if they want, but it's 12 or $13 as opposed to a $32 plate that is automatically two portions where half of it comes back or you know so we try to avoid waste that way and we also try because margins are so tight we also try to make sure that we're really careful with what we order and we're pretty precise we order probably three or four times a week we don't really freeze things but for an operation so if we're if we're operating well we don't have a lot of waste anyway we don't have a lot of spoilers we cross utilize products so if we are trimming a side of a steak we'll serve the steak and then we'll make tartare so we 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 try to do that really well so we probably don't have a ton of waste but if we wanted to work with your group what are other ways like what can we tack on because it's weird because it feels like if we if we partner with you guys which i'm excited to do it's going to be like well if you don't have much waste which is probably a win to like responsibly operating a restaurant if you don't have much waste then you're also not really supporting this great cause and so i think is there ways that we can think about that? Yeah, I th I, and I think it's a great question. I, I want to give you some relief there because like that basically a lot of the work that goes unseen on my end is I do a lot of consulting with restaurants and, and food serving companies and I'll go in and I'll say, hey, how do you manage your waste and you know what do you do with it and how can I help? And if it's that, if it's, hey, we just make a specials menu every week and that's what the food, you know, that's what the food waste kind of mm -hmm. goes towards, then I'm like, beautiful, we can end it there. If you have things that, you know, aren't actually, um, donatable to food rescue, you know, for people to go and eat. Um, I just suggest ba basically maybe starting up a composting contract with one of the composting businesses in the city. Yeah. Um, but other than that, our partnership can look like, you know, maybe um, at Barrel Proof uh, for one week, you know, 15% of the proceeds goes to yeah. our site because we are private, you know. Yeah. Um, funded and grant funded yeah, and so that's we, awesome that's thank you know. yeah so basically we do a lot of partnerships with restaurants too to um, make sure that we can get funds to continue our work um, that is a very important part of, of our of our organization you know and, and as you as you know probably Peter because you're involved in the business community here the restaurant industry and you also know this it's super tight-knit we're all friends oh, it's yeah. not really it's not competitive everybody feels like all the restaurants are competing with each other they're, they're all hanging out together on off days and so I think this, I think you, like people, all my friends. One tells the other and you, oh, yeah. Oh, we love this. We love this. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and like, you know, I, there's a lot of restaurants that, right, I go to and, you know, I begin to know the, the owner or the kitchen manager and, and basically I, and they tell me, you know, we, we already, you know, we basically already cook our waste or we have very little mm -hmm. or we create a specials menu or we, you know, if we have it, we donate it to the community fridges and I'm like, good, cut it off there for us. But I also would like to create like a list of people who actually manage their ways to promote y'all, you know, to promote the, you know, how you basically uh, manage your waste. And, and, and I think that's because there's a lot of restaurants that, that don't do that. I mean, you hear of a lot of restaurants, you know, that are like a lot more fast paced, especially like in the quarter that, you know, people who are working there are like dumping buckets of, of uh, yeah, green beans out or something like fine. that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, I think one of the things that, 
you know, the community here wants to hear and, and support and, and promote are the restaurants that manage their waste, like, like y'all You do. can't live in New Orleans and not have an appreciation of food. It's not till you leave here and go to other places that you realize the high culinary standards we're surrounded by here. Even tiny po'boy and snowball stands deliver taste you can't get anywhere else. And it's not till you leave here and go to other places that you realize how New Orleanians have a respect for each other that stands apart from the casual indifference people exhibit towards strangers in other cities. Because of that, Kelly, I'm sure New Orleanians will continue to rally around the cause for food rescue as they become more aware of it. And Robert, your bars, restaurants, and hotels are certainly taking their places in the long tradition of exemplary hospitality we're famous for here in New Orleans. And Kelly and Robert, thank you both for sharing your experiences and insights with us here today. And thank you for taking the time to join me on Out to Lunch. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Kelly Haggerty, Site Director at the New Orleans branch of Food Rescue U.S., and Robert LeBlanc, CEO and Creative Director at LeBlanc & Smith. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Kelly and Robert's careers in food by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app, and on our website, it's neworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Rashidi. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane, Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.